Well, good morning, Christ City again. Good morning. My name's Andrea. I serve as one of the pastors here at Christ City, and I want to welcome you to our service this morning here in the cafeteria at Minor and on YouTube. Today's reading is from the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 2, and we'll start with verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for uh, a Sunday where we can meet together here in this cafeteria. We ask God that we would recognize your spirit as it moves today uh, through worship, through singing, um, through our Kids City lesson, um, through this word that Matthew's going to bring. We ask God that we would be uh, open and ready to receive what you have for us this morning. So we give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Hey, uh, good morning, Christ City. Hey, yo, it is good to be with you in person. Man, I'm praising God for that. Listen, we have missed you. Uh, and yo, y'all look pretty good. Yo, that's good to see y'all. Wow. Um, it is really, it is really good. And thank you to those of you that are joining us on our live stream. Shout out to the YouTubers. Uh, thank you for joining us over the last um, several weeks in January. January, we've had some of our highest levels of engagement online. You guys have lit up the chat. Really appreciate that. Keep it coming. It's a huge encouragement uh, to us. Thank you for leaving prayers and praises and shout outs and all of that. So uh, thank you. And listen, I want to just say welcome to Jocelyn again. If we can just <laughs> praise the Lord for her. Um, we are just, we're uh, blessed to have this faithful saint joining uh, our staff here at Christ City. And uh, Jocelyn is, she's an accomplished and faithful minister. She's got a brilliant mind and a heart that is steadfast and tender towards the things of God. And so, Jocelyn, thank you for discerning with us and for being courageous and stepping uh, into this experiment called Christ City Church. We're, we've prayed for you and uh, we are thrilled that you're here to lead us uh, forward as, as the Spirit leads you. So, welcome uh, again, just really Really grateful for all of that. Earlier this week, uh, I had a chance to speak to a group of college students. Some of them are here. Surprise me. Great to see you guys. Um, had a chance to speak to a group of college students, about 30 to 40 students. Uh, and the event was being hosted by the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities, CCCU. We've 
had a number of CCCU uh, staff and students join us over the years, and the students are studying public policy, and specifically the intersection of faith and public life. And the students are from kind of around the country, but mostly from Christian colleges in the Midwest and along the West Coast, uh, but all of them uh, uh, were here. I was on a panel with two other D.C. pastors, and we were discussing the role, uh, interestingly enough, the role of, of preaching in politics. And, you know, I don't know what they were thinking. Let me get three preachers up on the platform to talk about preaching, like what did you think was going to happen? Um, most of the questions, though, they, they kind of dealt with um, how we as preachers preach on various political topics or political uh, moments and how we address political polarization. But as the conversation continued, one of the students, uh, they asked a, a particularly poignant question that on its face didn't have a whole lot to do with, with politics, actually. But in some ways, it, it had quite a lot to do with it. They said, you know, many young adults in, in massive waves uh, that were leaving the church, many of our peers were leaving the church, and some of them even are leaving the faith. What do you as pastors make of that? The two other pastors, they, they shared insights with, with a good deal of, of, of wisdom from their vantage points as pastors, one of a historic congregation located here in the district and another of an older, aging uh, congregation, predominantly older. And then what got to me, uh, you know, I just appreciated the power of the question and I asked the students, well, when you've talked to your friends that have left the church or that are leaving the faith, or leaving the Christian faith as they understand it, what do they cite as those reasons for which they're leaving? In the hands, they, they shouted kind of one-word responses or phrases, and they said things like hypocrisy, and judgmentalism, exclusion, and abuse. And I heard what those brilliant young people were saying, and I simply said, those are all right and good reasons to leave. I want to leave that form of church and that form of faith along with them. And from there, we talk more about the role and the voice of young people in the church and the collective hope that we have in the spirit that is sifting and refining and the hope that we have in God and God alone. And, and, and I finished my time on the panel, and for the last several days, I've just been thinking about the wisdom of those students, those young people, and thinking about the things that they said and and maybe this is a more gracious reading than some might give, but I've been thinking about how churches or ministries or even faith movements can start with the best and glorious of intentions, but then become shipwrecked on the shores of things like hypocrisy and exclusion and judgmentalism and in the worst cases, abuse. I don't think that a majority of the churches or ministries or faith movements, though some have for sure, I don't think they begin with the aim. They don't start from the vantage point of, hey, let's start a new church or a new movement that's really built on exclusion and judgmentalism. And then other folks are like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. I I'm not sure that's how it started. But what can happen is that the initial passion uh, for people, that it begins to get lost in the forms that that passion takes in the life of a church or in the life of a ministry or in a faith movement. And over time, the, those forms and those structures, those systems of things that, that, well, those things become what's most important rather than the driving initial motivation of loving God and loving others. And it seems to me that that in the passage that we read today in, in Mark 2 through Mark 3, that it strikes me that this might have been one of the things that Jesus was addressing. 
that there had been a form of faith, in this case, Sabbath-keeping, that was initially a form of faith that was intended to lead to life and to flourishing and to devotion to the Lord. But over time, it had become a, a tool of become a tool of judgmentalism and exclusion and hypocrisy and even abuse. A few weeks ago, we began uh, what's going to be a longer journey through the gospel of Mark for us. Uh, We are going to break the gospel into sort of 13-week chunks. We're going to take some breaks in the series along the way at Advent and other times. But the focus of this first 13-week stretch for us, it finds us wrestling with kind of these dual themes that Mark lays out in the first chapter. The theme of the nearness of God's kingdom on the one hand, and then what belief in that kingdom looks like in the life of followers of Jesus on the other. In other words, the first section of Mark, it sort of pinballs between stories of God's kingdom and displays of what faith in that kingdom look like, examples of what it looks like. In Mark 2 and 3, we find another way that Mark uses this syncopated rhythm of kingdom and kingdom example and the way that demands that the readers make sense of Jesus' lordship and Jesus' kingship over God's kingdom that's being proclaimed and displayed. We pick up the story in Mark 2, verses 23. You can read it there. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they picked some of the heads of the grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions, his friends that were there. And then he said to him, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Mark notes in this story that it takes place on the Sabbath. By the way, you should just note that Mark is often keen to alert the readers of the winds and what times in which things happen because those are important to his message. A few weeks ago, we looked at when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law and Mark noted then that it occurred on the Sabbath, but uh, he noted that it happened uh, you know, after sunset, meaning that Sabbath had ended. And so then Jesus healed the mother-in-law. This comes into play in this story because here Jesus isn't waiting until sundown. He's healing actually on the Sabbath. So be alert as you're reading Mark's gospel of the winds and the what times and how comes. But in Mark 2.23, Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through the grain field probably a wheat field, and they're plucking the grains and they're separating the grain uh, from the stalk with their hands. They're probably eating it. This is the way that you could sort of sift it. And this would have fallen under the Sabbath rules that forbade reaping and harvesting on the Sabbath. Functionally, according uh, to Jewish uh, law that governed life and faith, what they were doing by walking through the grain fields, breaking the grain up, they were actually violating the Sabbath law. And so the Pharisees, who were faith leaders in the Jewish community and care deeply about adherence to the law, they see Jesus' disciples doing this, and they ask Jesus about it. They say, hey, why are your disciples doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? What's going on here? And what's interesting to note is that um, Jesus is the one that's questioned by the Pharisees. They don't actually ask the disciples, hey, what are y'all doing? They ask Jesus. Because it was the actions of the disciples and the actions of the disciples, they reflect on the rabbi. 
the actions of the followers of Jesus, they, they reflect on Jesus. You see, what, what the disciples did, it prompted questions for those that were watching. It prompted questions of Jesus and prompts wondering about the veracity of Jesus' teaching. This is true today, by the way. It, 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 it is fair for an unbelieving, for a watching world to measure the truthfulness of Jesus and of Christianity by the witness of Jesus' followers. And it's why it's so tragic when looking back over Christian history and seeing the horror of violence and, the, uh, and, and, and power grabbing and lies and abuse and genocide and all that is littered through the history of the church. It's tragic because the actions of the disciples reflect on the rabbi. And while we might be inclined to say, no, 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 just look to Jesus. Don't look to the church. Don't look to Christians. Just look to Jesus. And that's true and that's right. And yet it can shift our gaze away from the needed reckoning and from the needed repentance and the needed recommitments to follow Jesus and Jesus' ways. You see, in the teachings of Jesus, we have to examine our lives individually and our collective lives and interrogate the ways that we have been as a people out of step with our rabbi. Come on. Come on. Christ City, this is a word for us as well. Are we collectively living in a way that's bearing witness to the peaceable kingdom of God? Are we being salt and light? Are we living as uh, ambassadors and heralds and evangelists and prophets and proclaimers of a gospel? Or are we displaying God's love? Or are we doing something contrary to that that would raise the ire and the question of an unbelieving world that says, do you really follow this Jesus that I hear you talking about? The actions of the disciples, they reflect on the rabbi. The Pharisees, they, they question Jesus, and, and Jesus responds by referencing a passage from 1 Samuel chapter 21. And it's a story where, where David's, you know, he's kind of running for his life. He's running from King Saul, and he's cared for, he sort of bumps into a priest, and the priest cares for him. King Saul wants David dead, and uh, so the, when he finds the priest, the priest like kind of reluctantly is like, all right, I guess I'll hide you. Like, I really, I'm not sure about it, but come on in, you and your buddies, and David's hungry. And uh, the only thing that the priest has to eat is something that's called shoe bread, it, which was called the presence bread in this passage. Shoe bread, it was used for worship, and it was, it was consecrated bread that was specifically for the tabernacle. It was kind of symbolically prepared in sort of 12 baked rows. I'm not a baker. I'm going to mess this whole analogy up, but it was placed like, you know, 12 rows. And it was placed on the table in a certain way to show respect and to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. It was placed on the altar every Sabbath, and it was, could only be eaten later and only by priests who had cleansed themselves and had been consecrated. But in 1 Samuel 21, the priest gives it to David, and there's no indication in the story, in Scripture, in 1 Samuel, or later even in Jewish understanding of the scene, that this action violated any rules governing worship or offerings or sacrifices, meaning what the priest did was right. So Jesus is doing a, a few things here when he's referencing that story. First, he's challenging the prevailing notion of what the Sabbath is for. And then secondly, He's establishing his primacy over Sabbath laws. Jesus is citing David as his, as his predecessor, as his, as his precedent. In essence, he's saying, listen, David had authority over the Sabbath. And that's why he was able to eat the shoe bread in violation of Sabbath keeping, as was understood at the time. And furthermore, David gave some of the shoe bread to the guys that was with him. 
Again, an ongoing violation of the Sabbath, as we might understand it. But then Jesus furthers the point by saying that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is identifying himself as one who is greater than David and as one who is greater than the Sabbath. The, the, the truth is, though, that this point can actually be lost on us. I think it's lost on us because we just don't make much of the Sabbath sometimes. I'm not sure that we have the same value and understanding of the Sabbath that those first hearers would have had. We, uh, you, we, so the weight and the importance of what Jesus is saying and what the disciples were doing in that grain field, it can be a little bit missed on us. You see, the, the Sabbath was one of the things that marked Jews off from their pagan neighbors. It wasn't just like a, a way for folks to like earn favor with God. It was, it was actually part of their cultural and their ethnic identity as a people. It was a badge of their Jewishness. It was a, a form of their national identity. The Sabbath was a, a weekly reminder of the freedom that God had wrought in their lives. And the Sabbath pointed them collectively towards the freedom that God had, uh, had made way for in the Exodus story. The Sabbath was, it was interwoven for them in what it meant to be Jewish and deeply embedded in the Jewish narrative of liberation. That's why the Pharisees were so bent when they see the disciples violating it. And listen, let's talk about the Pharisees for a minute because they, they show up consistently in Mark's gospel and clearly as the enemies of Jesus. And it's, but yet it's still important for us to humanize them and to understand who they were and how even their story might intersect ours. You see, the Pharisees within Judaism, they were actually, they started as a renewal movement. They longed to see a, a fresh breath of God be breathed into their faith and to see God's blessing descend on them and onto a people that they loved and a faith that they shared. There was a strand of belief that emerged within Pharisaism that believed that one of the reasons that Israel was being ruled by a foreign power, in this case, Rome, that, that the reason that they were being oppressed and dispossessed of their land was because they, as a faithful people, had abandoned their fidelity to God. And as a consequence, God had allowed a foreign pagan ruler to occupy their land and to desecrate their temple and was forcing them to live as vassals in the Roman Empire. And so the Pharisees, they viewed their work as, as a renewal movement, as, a, as, a, as an effort to reinvigorate faith in Yahweh and to see their people be liberated again. And that renewal and that freedom, that, that freedom included freedom from Rome, that it was going to come about via their faithfulness to the law, their faithfulness to Sabbath keeping. And so when the Pharisees, when they see Jesus and his disciples walking through the grain fields, violating the Sabbath, it's not just that they violated the Sabbath, but in the calculus of the Pharisees, they're furthering the Roman occupation. Do you see why they're so angry about it? I think sometimes we just think of them as like, oh, the Pharisees were rule followers. No, they, they were wanting to see a fresh move of God in their midst. And for the Pharisees, it's not just that Jesus and the disciples weren't following the rules, but that they were paving the way for Israel's ongoing oppression. And those that failed to follow were the enemies of God and God's people. But you see, what had gotten lost for the Pharisees is that they began to believe that their hope for liberation was in following the Sabbath 
rather than in following the one who gives the Sabbath. Rather than in following uh, the, the, the one who is, who is our liberator. And in that way, the Sabbath had become a weapon and a sign of exclusion and judgment upon those who didn't practice it properly. Jesus' lack of proper Sabbath observance in the conventional ways of the day was unraveling the forms of religion and challenging their notion of cultural identity. See, what Jesus is calling into focus for the Pharisees and, and, and to us is clarity around where our salvation resides. Does our salvation find its location and origins in spiritual rituals or rules or the systematic responses of faith that we employ in order to foster our love for God? Or does our salvation reside in God and God's self? We have to honestly ask, are we more in love with uh, are we more in love with and faithful to systems or structures or spiritual disciplines or formative practices or liturgies of faith that have guided us in our relationship with Jesus? Or are we more in love with Jesus? Am I more in love with the work of compassion and advocacy and justice-seeking all done in the name of Jesus and for the sake of God's kingdom? Or am I able to say to those whose work does my work emanate out of my love for Jesus and his kingdom? You see, godly faith requires action. Yes, absolutely, full stop. Yet it must not, cannot ever forget that our faith in action is all predicated upon Jesus' ultimate action. Yeah. We do this, whatever the this is. We preach, pray, protest. We do this because Jesus did it. That's our origins and our origin story. If our faith is rooted in either some form of private piety or public justice, then we may well be flirting with a new form of Pharisaism. Our faith must be rooted in the Lord of the Sabbath. Mark's gospel then turns its attention to another story of Jesus' faith and Jesus' failed Sabbath keeping. I feel weird even saying that phrase. In Mark 3, Jesus uh, heals a man on the Sabbath. We can look again in verse 1. Another time, Jesus uh, went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, and some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everybody. I don't know if the man was an introvert or if that embarrassed him. I don't know what that was about. But Jesus said, stand up. He stood up. By the way, if this is your first time here, I just want to invite you to stand up in honor of the... <laughs> I'm just messing with you. No, that's cool. And Jesus asked him, uh, which is lawful to, on the Sabbath, to do good or to, to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. They didn't answer. And he looked around them in anger. And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Jesus, again, he's in a synagogue, means he's there on a the Sabbath. There's a man whose hand is withered. The Greek word that's, that's there for, for, for withered, it's, it's different than some words that we've seen in previous stories. In the original text, it indicates that the hand that it withered over time. 
most likely through an illness. He wasn't born that way. But rather his hand, once strong, had become weakened over time. This can happen in life. Parts of our bodies. Parts of our lives, parts of our souls that were once strong, they wither. Times where the weight of the world and the pressures of the day bring a sinister disease that withers those parts of our lives. Relationships with our parents can wither. With our children, marriages that feel as though they may be withering under the demands of a life or the demands of a lifestyle, they can wither too. The vision that you once had for your life, that might can wither over time. You started out with a sense of purpose and mission, and somewhere along the road, that vision was choked out by the demands of the day, and your dreams began to wither. And there's a man with a withered hand, but he's there on the Sabbath in the synagogue. The place that was meant to worship God, the place that was meant to be the location where we together remember what God had done, that God was a, a healing God, a freeing God, a restorative God, and yet there he sat, his hand withered. Tragically, this synagogue on the Sabbath it had actually become the least likely place where the man would find healing. Because of the rigid ways that the people of God had come to understand the intent of the Sabbath, they actually prohibited some forms of healing on the Sabbath. That phenomenon is not just related to ancient synagogues in the New Testament. It can be related to churches. We can come into this place in this time, specifically set aside for us to remember what Christ has done on our behalf, specifically to remember again and remind one another that God is bigger than and is the healer of our withered places in our lives. And the double tragedy is that we come to this place, we put on a veneer that everything is right in the world, and we don't have a need for Jesus' healing presence in our lives. And to do that would to bring forward the same Sabbath misbelief that Jesus is protesting in Mark, in Mark 3. Dear ones, I want you to know that, that Jesus is here. That he extends to you the offer of healing and restoration. Whatever it is that you are experiencing that has withered in your life, what if Jesus wants you to experience healing and strengthening today? What if your healing could begin today? If you might just extend that to him and watch it be healed in this midst. If you get nothing else from Mark 3, notice that Jesus is there, that he sees the man. He recognizes him in his state. And know that Jesus sees you here in whatever state of your life that you find yourself in, that he's ready to receive you and to heal you. Jesus heals the man. He can heal you too. The scene in Mark 3, it's, it's just so full of these confounding paradoxes and images. Jesus is healing life while the Pharisees are planning to take life. The, the Sabbath intended to be a day of healing, but there are rules preventing the man's healing. It's dizzying to keep up with them all. But, Je but before Jesus actually heals the man, he, he, he addresses the, the Pharisees. 
Again, they're there with Jesus, and actually the text indicates that they're there because they know that Jesus can heal the man. That's why they showed up, to see if he would actually do it. Mark 3 says they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. They were trying to catch Jesus breaking the Sabbath again. And this time, not by harvesting grain, but by uh, healing a man who bore the image of God. Jesus asked him, is it lawful only uh, to do harm or to do evil on the Sabbath, or can we also do good on the Sabbath? Jesus' pointing question, it struck at the heart of the misapplication of the Sabbath on the part of the Pharisees. As Jesus questions the leaders of the day, they, they, they wouldn't even answer. Verse 4, but they remained silent. They were silent. The silence was palpable. It, it, it revealed that they cared more about the customs and the traditions than uh, about their brother's well-being. They're more eager to bring Jesus down than to restore the man's hand. They cared more about the forms of their faith than about the substance of that faith. And so they were silent. They couldn't even bring themselves to just say and acknowledge, Jesus, you're right. People matter more than systems and structures, even religious systems and structures. And so if you can heal a man, then heal him. Said there was thick silence. Saints, where are the places in your life where you're silent? Where is Jesus longing for your voice to be heard? Where is he longing for you to speak up and reveal the glory of God and the love of neighbor? Where is Jesus asking you to speak? Where is Jesus inviting you to join in his work in the world, to, to lend your voice, to lend your, your presence, your participation, your prayers, your protest, not as a way to secure God's love, but because of God's love towards you in the world? During his march on Washington, Dr. King preached and he said, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good ones. Where is Jesus longing for your voice to be heard? All of us have one. Everybody's got a voice. Everybody's got a life. Everybody's got a, a presence. Everybody's got a God-imagined, God-infused, spirit-filled voice that we can use to proclaim the good news of God's kingdom. Perhaps it's joining with those that are advocating for affordable housing. Lend your voice there. It's needed. Perhaps it's serving the minor community table. Perhaps it's Caring for those within our church who are walking through a season of deep darkness and sadness and pain. Perhaps it's sharing good news with your neighbors in your building. Where is Jesus longing for your voice to be heard? Don't be silent. Yes. After the silence, two things happen. First, Jesus is disheartened by what the scriptures call the, their stubborn hearts. And second, Jesus heals the man. Even in his frustration and disappointment in the people of God, he healed the man. He displays the marks of God's healing kingdom and he puts on notice again that he is the Lord of the Sabbath and the deeper truth that any of our faith's forms are meant to point us towards the one who saves. Church, in both of these stories, the message is the same. 
And it's a cautionary tale with a glorious invitation. The caution is to beware of the ways that the forms that our faith takes, whether it's the forms that our faith takes in the life of a church or the systems or structures or spiritual practices or actions or activities of faith-inspired movements, we have to beware of the temptation to make those forms holy and sacred. And begin loving those forms and those activities, believing that they are the one right way to live faithfully. For when we do that, our faith will begin to crystallize into a form of faith that peddles in something that stifles life and healing rather than catalyzes it. And then the invitation is to ever and always turn to Jesus, to follow Jesus, to love Jesus, to believe in Jesus, and from that ground and that foundation to step out into the wider world of faith and practice that includes worship and community, formation and prayer and communion and activism and compassion and mercy and justice and Sabbath keeping. So this morning, maybe you need to repent of the ways that you have loved religion and religious forms at the cost of loving Jesus and people. Maybe you need to ask Jesus to restore the withered parts of your life. And maybe you need to say yes to Jesus' invitation to use your voice and to repent of your silence. Let me pray for us. Spirit of God, I, I pray that in this moment, as we look to the gospel of Mark, as we look to two and three, Spirit, that you would speak to us, that you would say something to us, that we wouldn't just be hearers of this, but Spirit, that we would respond rightly, that we would respond courageously, that, that we wouldn't just say, well, that's a good message for somebody else, but, but maybe that there's something in us that you want to stir and churn and that you want us to interrogate about the ways that, that we have had divided loves. Spirit, your conviction always comes with an invitation. So let us not shrink back or flinch from what it is that you're saying to us and doing in us. Spirit, there may be folks, I know that there's folks in this room that have felt the withering effects of the enemy on their lives. Spirit of God, I pray that you would minister to them, that you would come alongside them in this moment and say, I see you. Healing is now, it's on the horizon. Both of those things are true. Spirit of God, remind us all of your great love towards us. You are not a God that judges or abandons or excludes us, but you are one that ever and always moves towards us and embraces us speaks your delight over us and meets us even in the withering. Spirit, there's others of us we've pulled our punches. We lean back. We should have leaned in. 
we dipped and dodged when we should have take, taken a step forward. We, we knew. We knew the moment that we should have said something. We didn't say anything. We knew the spot where we were supposed to show up. The place where we were supposed to stand in solidarity and allyship. And we, and we, and we, uh, we just thought it easier to tweet or to like something. And, and we, didn't, we didn't put our bodies on the line. We didn't put our voices in the chorus. Spirit, as we were reminded even in the liturgy that you are faithful and just to forgive us and you always extend an invitation to us to do it again and to do it better. Not on our own strength, but yours in us. Spirit, whatever it is that you, whatever ways you need to challenge or comfort in this moment, I pray that you would. name of the Lord of the Sabbath, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.